trigger warning. This episode will include the topic of inappropriate conduct with minors. Listener discretion is advised. Alice in Wonderland has been fascinating both children and adults for over 150 years. Today, you'll hear all about the author, the real-life Alice, and how the story came to be. But did you also know there's a very controversial issue with Lewis Carroll and Alice? Find out the good and the bad next on Technically a Conversation. Greetings, super friends. Welcome to another edition of Technically a Conversation. Here, we like to share an interesting topic with each other, which we've recently learned about and hope you find it interesting too. I'm one half of your hosts, Isela. Joining me as always is the brains behind this whole operation, Jose. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. How about yourself? Good. How's your week been going? Uh, not the best, but we'll talk about it offline. Actually, we already talked about it offline. <laughs> I've heard about the woes, yes. <laughs> How about you? How's your week going? Good. My sister's in town and her kids, so it's a lot of fun and it's craziness. I was throwing the football with my nephew, my godson, and then painting my niece's nails. I mean, it's all kinds of fun. What kind of football? The real football or the egg football? I bought... Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's, the, uh, <laughs> it's the egg football, yeah. And it's not even like a real one, which I'm, I know I probably lost a lot of cool points, but it was like this really cute, like a spongy hot pink one. I was like, of course, you're going to want this, my godson. And he was like, this is weird, but yeah, let's play with it. <laughs> so he's always game. I love it. Yeah. The spongy ones are the ones that I'm not afraid of. The other ones, they hurt if you get hit in the face, which I got hit in the face when I was in high school. So I don't really like playing with the... <laughs> With the real egg balls. <laughs> that was what you said. <laughs> Football is not for me. <laughs> Actually, it was. That's when I got injured. Yeah, when I was in high school and I was like, yeah, I don't. well, the doctor told me that if I got hit again, I would have to get surgery. So I was like, oh, I don't like football that much. I only really did it for the Letterman jacket or that was really the only reason that I wanted to do it. Wait, so did you, so where did you need the surgery? And like on your nose? No, no, for my knees. Because I got hit in the face with the ball. And somehow I ended up catching it and everybody's like, run, run. So I couldn't see where I was running. I just took off running and some dude hit me and I went and I skidded on the, we we're playing outside like in the asphalt because we were playing flag football. But, you know, again, I couldn't see what I was doing. So I got hit and I slid on the asphalt and I couldn't walk really good. So my dad took me to, um, to get x-rays and all that shit. And they're like, well, I mean, your knees are crooked. And I was like, okay. So they're like, you're going to have to wear some implants in your shoes. And if you get hit again like that, you're going to need to get surgery. So I was like, oh, okay. So I'm not going to do it anymore. Yeah. I don't blame you. Got to get out before that CTE. <laughs> 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 anyway, that was probably the wiser choice. I hate to say it, but if I had a son, I don't think I would allow him to be in football only because of CTE. And I feel like we only have one brain and we don't know how to repair it. And I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't think I would allow that. <laughs> yeah. And my brain is already fucked up as it is. Imagine if I had years of, <laughs> of concussions and everything. <laughs> At least you'd have a good excuse. I'm just kidding. 
Oh, that's even more sad. I don't have an excuse. Oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you've been having a lot of fun with your family, though. It's been great. It really has been. Brief reminder, we still have that opportunity to win your very own super cool t-shirt, a technically a conversation t-shirt. Tell them what they got to do, Jose. It's very easy. All you have to do is leave us a review, send us a screenshot to one of our socials. We're at Greetings TAC everywhere. We'll read it on the show. And once you get 25 reviews, we'll do a drawing and give the winner a sexy Technically a Conversation t-shirt. So check out technicallyaconversation.com or the show notes for all the deets. Now for our shout out time. Here's the list, y'all. The loyal and the royal queens. Elena and Erica, The Duke, Stephen B, JCK, Contra Zoom Pod, Podcast, Jose R, and Juan T. Woo! Very nice. You know you make me wanna shout. So thank you guys for everything that you guys are doing to help out our tiny little podcast here. Thank you, thank you. It's very much appreciated. So celebration time is over. Time to learn. I'm just kidding. It's kind of like a rough transition right now. <laughs> okay, I'll put the uh, noisemaker and the balloons away. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> Have you ever wondered where the phrase comes from of like, oh, I fell down the rabbit hole of whatever. I've usually heard this pertaining more to like YouTube videos and stuff like that. That happens to me a lot on YouTube and, and on Wikipedia. <laughs> but I believe it's a reference to Wonder Alice in Wonderland. Yes, you are absolutely correct. Well, last week's interesting conversation reminded me of the topic that I actually had slated for November. Yeah, I, I planned these things really far ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but there is an annual festival that takes place on the 4th of July for this particular topic. So it's still quite timely. I said, well, you know, we had this cool conversation last episode. Let's keep on with this uh, childhood conversation. So let's go back to our childhoods. Around the time you either read or heard about the story of Alice in Wonderland. It's a really trippy story. First, give me your thoughts on Alice in Wonderland. I like it. I think it's a good story. I'm not that familiar with the book. I'm only really familiar with the stuff that Disney has released. And um, one of Batwoman's villains is Alice, who I guess is inspired by Alice in Wonderland. And she makes a lot of references, or at least in the TV show, she makes a lot of references to Alice in Wonderland. Oh, wow. I did not know that at all. That's pretty cool. To me, it was really intriguing to hear these like really cool stories of a young girl. She's shrinking. She gets really tall, you know, growing into a giant, then a talking caterpillar is around and a tea party with a Mad Hatter. I mean, it was a really fun fantasy world to hear about. So I always really liked it. Allow me to take you on a quick tangent for a moment. Last Thursday, my coworker and I had a real brief conversation where I admitted I couldn't listen to a singer who shall remain nameless after he broke up with Halsey. I couldn't listen to him anymore. And it was mostly because he left her so broken and she has videos where she was like crying and she just looked helpless. It was really awful. It was really sad. Is it King Diamond? Yes, it was him. <laughs> you imagine? Well, I know a lot of people have a hard time with his voice since it's so high pitched. So it is pretty high pitched. Yeah. That's normally who I hear complaints about when I try and introduce him to the <laughs> wonderful King Diamond. I wrote off this artist more so because of what he did to Halsey. Oh, got it. 
mentally, like I said, I just wrote him off as an artist, kind of like what I did to Chris Brown after he heartlessly beat up Rihanna. Never liked his fucking crappy music anyway. Adios, Felicia. <laughs> like, I don't even care. You know what I mean? Do you have an artist or an actor that made you feel, you know, like kind of in a similar situation? As a matter of fact, I do. Oh, really? Yeah, I used to be a huge fan of Iced Earth. They're not a very popular metal band. Uh, well, I, I guess they're as, as popular as it gets while you're still underground. You know, they never really broke through in the mainstream. But the guitarist and main songwriter for the band, he was one of those uh, January 6th assholes. So after his picture began circulating online, well, first of all, it was kind of funny because like everybody identified him immediately <laughs> and reported him. Yeah. <laughs> was he trying to deny it though? That's even funnier. He's like, wasn't me. All shaggy. Wasn't me. <laughs> no, I, I don't think he ever tried to deny it, but I thought it was pretty funny that, you know, pretty much everybody threw him under immediately. <laughs> They have such good songs, it's really hard for me to give up on them 100%, but I know I don't listen to them as much as I normally would. And every time that I do listen to it, I do feel dirty. I hear you. So there are some people that I do still appreciate. So I, I get that completely. One, for example, is Pablo Picasso. After he did that really mean thing to his lover, I think we talked about that. Did you, did you know about that fucked up thing he did to his lover? I don't think it was me because this sounds new to me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, it's another Jose guy. Um, yeah. It was Jose R who uh, retweeted us. The one we <laughs> shouted out. Yeah. <laughs> he put out a cigarette on Francois Gallo's, um, one of his lover's cheek, which is kind of fucked up. Oh, shit. That's super fucked up. Yeah. There's no way I condone that. But yet, I can still say I appreciate his art. I know it's like weird and I know what you mean. Like, for me, it's almost like mentally, I had them in this like, oh my God, they're so great. And then when you hear about those things, like they do get kicked down a few notches, if you will. But I can still appreciate their art. Yeah, I had no idea about that. Had I known, I wouldn't have bought a reproduction. And it's actually really funny. I don't know if anybody really knows this, but you and I have the same Picasso painting. We do. We do. Because it's such a pretty one. But you know what? I knew that and I still bought it because I, I still think it's such a beautiful, it's so vulnerable and it's so full of emotion. And it's just really funny because we both bought it independent. It was before either of us knew each other. Yes. It's so funny. Yeah. And I think one time you came over to my house <laughs> and you were like, oh my God, I have that one. <laughs> yeah. And then I forgot that you had told me that. And uh -huh. then the first time that I went to your house, I was like, oh shit, I have that same painting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It's all Groundhog's Day. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Where we draw the line is very specific to the person. It's a very personal choice. Nobody can say, oh, you're right or wrong or whatever. That's just the way it is, right? We might test that limit today after what we learn in this episode regarding Alice in Wonderland, or more so the author. It's going to be a little bit of a yay-boo emotional ride, so buckle up. We're going to talk about the author, Lewis Carroll, a little bit of his background, his inspiration for one of the best children's books, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Many people believe that the story behind the muse is way more egregious than others would like to think. Bada-bing, bada-boom. Panchovi. Yeah. <laughs> Hence, the tangents are now colliding. So let's uncover what Lewis Carroll is hiding so we can make a decision for ourselves at the end of this podcast. What do you think? 
Sounds interesting. I'm on board and I got my seatbelt on. Cool. <laughs> yes. I'm all snuggled into my booster chair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the child seat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Most of this information comes from a documentary I watched titled The Real Life Alice, where there's a very thorough journalist. She goes to where Carol lived, where he worked, um, and surely where he wrote the book. There are also images of the first manuscript of it. Jose, I got to tell you, it is gorgeous. From the lettering to the illustrations, all done by Carol himself in that very first manuscript. Oh, wow. So he was an artist also. Yes, yes, he really was. The book was published in 1864, 157 years ago. (laughs) So long as time ago. Translated in over 170 languages. It is, by all accounts, one of the best children's stories. Further, it has definitely stood the test of time because it's been made into several movies, a ton of cartoons. Uh, The doc I saw even said that Lewis Carroll was the third most quoted author, only beaten out by Shakespeare and Jane Austen. That's pretty good company. Yeah, definitely. Who is the man behind the bestseller? Let's talk about this British bloke. (laughs) First of all, that's not even his real name, Lewis Carroll. See how men lie to you from the start? I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was born Charles Dodgson, where he grew up with seven younger sisters and four younger brothers. That's a big ass family, right? Yeah. Those parents were busy. And they didn't have a TV, so it's the only way to entertain themselves. What a snore. I'm just kidding. When he, <laughs> when he was 11, the family moved to a place where the kids didn't have any friends. So Charles would make homemade magazines and cartoons to entertain himself, but also his brothers and sisters. This tells us he already had a knack for storytelling and entertaining kids from a young age. Even later, as an adult, children always remained in his life. When he would write to these child friends, they also have images of it on the dock. They were tiny works of art. They were fun to read. One of them was in spirals. The other one, instead of writing um, certain, like if he had table, he would draw a picture of a table. It was really fun. The documentary shows a few of these. I really do recommend watching the video or the the documentary because it was on a YouTube video. Up to this point, loving the documentary. (laughs) He became a professor of mathematics at Christ Church in Oxford in England. Here, he met the dean and his family, the Littles, um, and it's L-I-D-D-E-L-L, not like little as in chiquito (laughs) or small. The dean had three daughters. One of these daughters is the real Alice behind the story. Charles knew magic tricks, and he ended up befriending all three daughters. He was also a hobby photographer and photographed all three daughters as they were very photogenic, real pretty. Here's the listen up moment, y'all. Alice (laughs) was the youngest daughter and she was only four years old. Charles was 24. Quite an an unusual friendship and questionable, however you look at it. Charles was said to be very pressed and described to be very upright. The journalist was a really like prim and proper British lady. So I think what I was trying to get from her was she was trying to say, but she was so proper that I... I'm just going to translate it for you. It sounded like she wanted to say it looked like he had to stick up his ass. Okay, I'm just going to say it. (laughs) 
The doc I watched also explained that it's possible he could have had a form of the obsessive compulsive disorder, the OCD. In that time, to be in Christchurch, one had to take holy orders, be celibate. So he became the Reverend Charles Dodson. However, Charles had some speech problems, which really made him think twice about taking on a parish, because if he took a parish, that would mean he'd have to give some sermons. He kept a diary, and his diary did explain that he would want to read and words just wouldn't come out. Like he was just frozen. So he often drew in his diary. And there's one picture that one can only presume was was himself. He has big worried eyes and a hand, a huge hand is completely covering his mouth and like almost most of his face. Thus, he never fully converted into priesthood. This is probably a good little moment to pause and listen to our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to dive on back into this Very interesting story before it starts getting a little crazy. Did you know there was a Doctor Strange movie in 1978? Or that Tim Burton and Nicolas Cage almost made a Superman movie in the mid-90s? On Superhero Cinephiles, we take you on a journey into the world of superhero films including the acclaimed, the infamous, and the obscure. And you might just be surprised at some of our takes, because here we want to talk about the things we love, not the things we hate. Listen to Superhero Cinephiles on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us on the web at SuperheroCinephiles.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram at SuperCinemaPod. Curiosity is a main thread that's led me to where I am today. If I ever had a plan A, I've long since forgotten what it was. <laughs> I don't think that's plan A for anybody. That was what sparked my drive to go into this space. Where does that curiosity go would be what I'd like to explore. I'm Daniel Pointer. On Still Curious, I talk to guests from many worlds and walks of life about what lights them up, the ways they like to learn, and how they navigate the sometimes surprising situations they end up in through following their interests. What do people who are still curious have in common? and what can we learn from their stories that will inspire us on our own path. That excitement of going, oh my god, that connects. <gasps> That's so super cool. I started developing skills to cater to my own needs. It became a means to an end, solving all of my curious questions. Going through your life where everything has a kind of preciousness and mystery. Curious, creative, excited. That's what you want. What you don't want is people who just want to tick boxes. Still curious. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. How was your break? Good. How about yourself? It was lovely. Yeah. Excellent. I was thinking about where we left off. So we're going to dive right back in. I was thinking also, like, why was he really worried about having a speech impediment? If you think about it, it didn't hurt George Thorogood. Do you remember that guy? He had that big hit in the early 80s. Bad. Bad to the bone. How are you going to have a speech impediment and try to be bad to the bone? Like you can't, George. I never really thought about that. It's a speech impediment. It's not a hit. It's, yeah, it's him trying to tell us and reach out. (laughs) Maybe he became bad because of the speech impediment. Oh, my God. Is that, like, bad, like, cool? (laughs) (laughs) Let's question that. (laughs) Anyway, back to Charles. He ended up working in Christchurch for 26 years, never got married, 
He even instructed the administration to return all the senders of the like fan letters to send them back, like the whole return to sender. He never liked pictures, even though he took a whole bunch of pictures. And this kind of leads us to believe that perhaps he didn't like being recognized. He didn't like the whole idea of celebrity people kind of like going all over him or whatever. He did take hundreds of pictures of his friends, writers, other celebrities that most likely he met at fancy dinner parties that were taking place at the Dean's. The Dean was really, really famous. This was a really big church. So when they would have parties, they really did attract big names. One person from all these hundreds of photographs does stand out, though, and that's the pictures of little Alice Little. The day he met the three girls, he even wrote about it in his diary, which shows how special the day must have been for him. These pictures of her start when she's around six years old. She's definitely seen as like, you know, she's got more of an assurance to herself than her sisters do. Her sisters didn't like to be photographed. She really did. Um, he was really, really involved in their lives, like to a odd degree. They would even go to his room on campus. And then when they were at the age where they could leave the campus, Charles planned boat trips up the River Thames. And all three littles, Alice, Edith, and Lorena, would all go and have a good time. And he would always tell stories. And one of the times that they were begging for a story, specifically Alice, he told the story of what became the Alice in Wonderland story. They later begged him to write the story down. They loved it so much because it was filled with real life places they had been to. There really was a hole in the grounds um, right by the riverbank that one can only assume was the rabbit hole. And in the documentary, by the way, it does show it. It's pretty interesting. The three little girls that they found at the bottom of the well in the book were named Elsie, Lacey, and Tilly. And if you think about it, Lacey is an anagram of Alice. See how these things are all falling into place? In his diary on the 4th of July, this is where he noted that Alice begged him to tell the story. And this is also why there's an annual celebration every 4th of July in England. It's like an Alice in Wonderland day over there. Everybody gets dressed up as their favorite character. It's kind of interesting. It makes sense. He gave her the first manuscript as a gift for Christmas, and it was such a priceless gift. I'm telling you, it looks beautiful. The lettering is very elegant. Like I said, the pictures are drawn beautifully. The whole book is truly perfect. There are no crossouts, as one would expect from someone with OCD. The very last page had a photograph of Alice, just her head. A few years later, people realized that if you flip over the picture underneath was a drawn picture of that exact photograph. It's really beautiful. He did practice all the layouts and the drawings. They're still kept at Christ Church where they're shown in that documentary. And he was talked into publishing the book. When the published version came out, and well, actually when they were first even working it out, the very like the first prototype, I guess you will, was black. I had a black cover on it. And he was so involved that he changed the color cover to red because he felt, well, kids are only going to be drawn to like real bright colors. So he rejected that. The other thing that was interesting to note was in the initial book, the very first uh, printed, the published book was where you see the tea party. So that, that actually is not part of the original manuscript. It's believed that the illustrationist found it a 
little bit difficult to work with Charles because he kept returning the drawings to fix one thing or another. (laughs) Ultimately, when all was settled, Alice was the first female lead in a children's book. Her character's feisty. She's rather mature, which is very similar to what they described the real Alice to be. Clearly, he deeply cared for Alice from the diary. You know, we read it. It's like jumping off the pages how much he really cared for her. Like, it gives me a really bad gut feeling, but I don't know if that's just me. So let's just go to the pictures and talk about what those said of her. There's one of her now when she's 11 years old, where she's looking straight into the camera, almost like a challenging pose. The strap of her dress is off the shoulder, and she's even showing a little nipple. This is a very adult pose, which is where it's very questionable for most Could this have been acceptable in those times? Um, I don't know. I mean, they also mentioned in the documentary, this is, you know, this is a time where even babies were being painted naked as angels and, you know, their little butts were shown and, you know, does that make it okay? Like, I, I don't know. One thing for sure, though, is by the time this book was published, Charles and the Littles were no longer friends. And sadly, no one really knows why that happened. Naturally, we would go to the diary to see what he wrote about. But there are several pages torn out, almost like with a blade, like really nicely cut out. Are we getting uh, sus vibes yet? (laughs) I kind of started getting those vibes since earlier when you said that he was very good friends with the kids. I didn't want to pull an Elon and say pedo or whatever. But um, (laughs) I did uh, feel a little bit uneasy. And I was kind of thinking, where were the kids' parents during that time? Uneasy is the perfect word. I It didn't sit right with me either. I can have fun with my godson. And of course, we have a good time. But for me to take him out alone all the time, like that seems a little strange to me. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, maybe me is fine. I think because I'm family. Well, I don't know. I guess that could also be an argument. I don't know. I think it's different when you're family. When you're family, I think it's acceptable, you know, to hang out and be a loving member of the family. But if it's like your neighbor, like I wouldn't go to my neighbor's house to play with their kids, you know, that's super creepy. It's just an employee. Like that's a little bit strange. I completely agree. So now we can't rely on the diary because those pages, there's a lot of pages missing. And uh, they don't think that he did it. They believe that this is when the nieces inherited his diary. Remember, he never got married. So the nieces inherited the diary. And they think they're the ones who actually cut out the pages. But one theory as far as why they no longer kept a friendship is the mother cut off the relationship. Perhaps she was uh, observing that his affections were growing a little too much for Alice. And honestly, she wanted some type of royalty for her daughters, um, for all of her daughters, not just Alice. And he was obviously not royalty. He was, you know, just a, and not just, I don't knock I don't knock any teacher at all, but to her, you know, she probably saw him as a lowly teacher type of thing. Another theory is provided from a note that was written by one of the nieces who possibly cut out the pages. It stated that Alice's sister, the oldest one, was Lorena, and he was supposed to be courting her, and that's why he was taking out all the girls, almost like the girls were the chaperone so he could have time with Lorena. I don't know if I believe that, but 
there was also a letter found from Lorena to Alice when they were in their 80s. Lorena states in the letter that she was just interviewed by a biographer and she was worried that the excuse she gave was it believable. And then she specifies that mom spoke to Carol, explaining that he was getting a little too close and Carol was offended and he stopped coming around. So now the question is, why would she be worried if that wasn't the truth? I don't know. All very interesting to speculate about for sure. And then you got to think the age of consent back then was 12. That's awful. (laughs) Yeah, that's gross. It's very gross. And the picture of her was when she was 11. And in fact, there are records of friendships with a lot of young girls with Lewis Carroll, where it states that he would greet them and almost like their salutation was a kiss. I don't know. All of this is just very, it makes me very uneasy. Where was the kiss? Was it on the cheek or on the lips or? They didn't specify. So maybe if you ever get a chance to watch it, maybe you can tell me what you think if they specified. But yeah, I don't think they actually specified where it was. I was going to say I'm Mexican, so we kiss everybody on the cheek. And sometimes twice, right? Like one for each cheek. Oh, hello. Yeah. That wouldn't sound too out of the ordinary for me, but I don't know how it is in British culture. Maybe in British culture, that's not acceptable, or maybe it was in the mouth, which makes him sound creepy again. For sure. Well, when the family did invite him back for tea, he even noted in his diary that everything had changed. The last picture he took of Alice, she looks really, really sad. She went on to marry and um, she had a kid. Her very first son, she named Carol. Mm Hmm. Alice stated this had nothing to do with Lewis Carroll, but everyone in her family found it very hard to believe. Lewis Carroll, as many might know, went on to make sequels, you know, through the looking glass, etc. And perhaps it was his way of keeping that version of Alice that he knew alive. Right around minute 47 of the documentary, and it's just under an hour, the journalist states they're done interviewing everybody. But they've somehow happened upon another picture, but they don't know who took it. They don't know who it is, but it looks a lot like the older sister, Lorena. But she was closer to the age of 14 in this picture. And here's the bad news. She was fully nude. They bring it in to an expert to examine the photograph. He determines that It could be dated around the 1960s. And he goes into very detail, like what kind of wash is used and all kinds of stuff. But basically, he's concluding that it was dating around 1860s. And this is around when Charles was taking pictures. It was kept with a very worn label that can barely be read, but it definitely says Lorena Little L. Carroll Cole, C-O-L. Perhaps this is Lewis Carroll Collection. It used to be held in a gallery in Paris. After the owners passed, it was donated. And this is where they kind of happened upon it. This could be produced from the same camera. And it was definitely produced by the same development method that Lewis Carroll used. So the results on this examination showed it could have easily been taken by Lewis Carroll. Then the doc shows where David Anley reviews the photograph. And he's a forensic imagery analyst. Here, they isolated 
the size of the forehead and they were comparing a picture that they knew for sure was Lorena to this mysterious young girl. And the size of the forehead, the arches of the eyebrow, three parts of the nose, the upper lip, the shape of the lip, shape of the face. I mean, a shit ton of things that I don't even think I noticed on faces, but I guess that's because I look at everyone's butts or something. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. No, I'm kidding. But he also did go on to say, it's very likely that this could be Lorena. I have a ton of thoughts, especially because my sister was a parole officer for, I don't know, like 17 years. And she had the worst of the worst, which was all these sex offenders. I'll get into my thoughts, but I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it definitely doesn't bode well for Carol, the pictures. I mean, I already kind of suspected that he was kind of creepy when he was hanging out with those kids so much, but that just kind of goes to further confirm it. I don't know if any other information has come out about it, especially with the pages of the diary being taken out, but I don't like his vibe, as the kids would say. No, (laughs) I don't either. I ended up getting a voice memo for this particular episode because one of our super friends, he and my sister were parole officers, which is how he and I became friends. And he had this information to share. So I'm here enjoying my Starbucks and I get a call from my good friend Isela to ask me to drop some info on uh, some information on uh, pedophiles since I worked with them before many, many years ago. So uh, let's see, in my 20 plus year career of working uh, law enforcement, I had the privilege, well, let's say not the privilege, but the challenge of working with pedophiles. Uh, Now, one thing you do have to realize about pedophiles is they're not really habitable. Uh, meaning that uh, the chance of them being rehabilitated is close to zilch, since most of them were never really habilitated to begin with, basically meaning that they grew up with this deviant lifestyle, so their rates of recidivism for them were pretty high. Now, in my stint with working this caseload, I had this one guy, uh, he's a parolee, and I noticed during his office visits uh, with me, he always had these toy trinkets on his keychain, I remember him having a pink elephant, uh, a toy truck, and uh, the Noid. I don't know if you remember the Noid, but it kind of, it kind of dates myself. I think it was the, uh, the had to do with the Domino's Pizza. I think it was a mascot. So anyway, um, I didn't think too much of it at first, but you know, it left some, some suspicion in me. So often, uh, times as parole officers, we would schedule these uh, surprise home visits. And um, they seem to all live in the same area downtown, I remember, uh, back in, I think it was the early two, 2000s. And uh, so this guy was number one on my, on my checklist to check out and see what he was doing or what he was collecting in his apartment. So when I went in, uh, his place was pr- pretty clean, very neat. And uh, it's kind of, it's not out of the ordinary for, for pedophiles, believe it or not. But when I went looking into his drawers, I found uh, comic books, Lego sets, stuffed animals. Um, and of course, you know, we confiscated these things and this person's uh, parole was subsequently uh, terminated or revoked. Now, I know what some of you naysayers are saying is like, well, everyone collects toys and stuff, but it, it's got to be understood that this guy had no interest in comics or toys whatsoever. Not like Jose and I do. Hey. So... I always ask myself today or throughout the years, I was like, wow, what's, I mean, 
knowing pedophiles, what, what do they do with these type of things? Why do they collect them? Why do they have them? I would always think that they would use them maybe as bait for kids to come in and kind of lure them in. But more disturbing, I would think, is, well, maybe just as disturbing, but maybe they would use it as a focal point for themselves while they, while they pleasure themselves. It's sick. But anyway, um, so, so I collect toys and I collect comic books. Now, I have a healthy or maybe not so healthy interest in these comics and toys, but it's a different story for these uh, pedophiles. They collect them for totally different reasons. So, yeah, scary stuff. Well, uh, I hope this, this helps, guys. And uh, Isela, you owe me a Starbucks. Good luck. So the reason I wanted to play that was because in the documentary, they did explain how he made all these friends and how he picked up all these child friends on train cars. And the reason why was because his pockets were full of like toys and all these like magic tricks. I just found like that correlation to be too much of a correlation. And I don't know, it, it honestly does make me look at that story a little bit differently. I have to say I still like the fantasy of it, but very similar to Pablo Picasso, like it's been kicked down a few notches, if I can be perfectly honest. Yeah, I think I'm definitely going to think about it different now because I never really gave it much thought before or never really knew anything about the author. Not knowing those facts, it does make me view it a little bit different. Yeah. Sorry if I ruined another childhood. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Super Friend Noel, for sending us your professional opinion on that matter. I got a little worried there for a second when you were talking about adults collecting comic books and toys. <laughs> uh, you had some fun feedback, though. So now that we can switch gears, we can wrap this up. Yeah, we did. I guess to end on a high note. Yeah. We got a message from Dakota. He's one of the podcasters on the ContraZoom podcast, and he sent us a quick message. It said, love the Superman show, guys. Lots of fun stuff that I didn't know. Figured you'd enjoy this, but I actually work on the show Superman and Lois. And I was like, what? <laughs> oh, my God. I know I've said it on the podcast several times that Superman and Lois is one of the best shows on TV right now. I love it. And yeah, he sent us a picture of him hanging out in the set they made for Smallville he sent us a video of a stunt they did with Lana Lang. I was like, oh my God, this is super awesome. It really is. So yeah, he's a production assistant for the show. And I was like, that's so awesome. So check out Superman and Lois, now streaming on HBO Max and the CW app. Not a sponsored <laughs> ad. It's so cool. I appreciate the pictures and the video. Oh my God, it's so freaking cool. So thank you so much, Dakota, for sending that to us. Yes. And that makes you our super friend of the week. Yeah. All right, guys. You don't need to be that cool to write in. So we always encourage anybody to write in, by the way. <laughs> that said, though, it's going to take a lot to beat Dakota. <laughs> I, know, I know. It's so exciting. <laughs> it's definitely exciting. Yeah, and he actually does have a episode on his podcast where he talks about it a little bit. If anybody is curious to listen to a little bit more, it was an episode from April to celebrate the seven-year anniversary of their podcast. Wow. And the episode is called Better Know a Contributor, Dakota Arsenault. So if you guys want to go check it out, 
I do recommend that he talks about how he got into movies and, you know, how he moved to Vancouver and started working on the show. It's really interesting. I do recommend everybody check it out, especially if you're a big nerd like I am and loves comic book stuff, uh, especially if you're a fan of Superman and Lois. Well, I definitely want to check it out. Even just people's backstories are always fun to hear. Yeah, it definitely is. It's very interesting. Cool. Well, congratulations, lovelies. You guys have done it again. You've learned along with us, learned some cool things, and definitely perhaps not some cool things that you might regret if you're a big fan of Lewis Carroll. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you've been entertained by our chat and invite you to join us again next week. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review, tell a friend, and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast now. Yeah. (laughs) Follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, at Greetings. T-A-C. Email us at greetings, T-A-C at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 915-317-6669 if you have a story to share with us. <laughs>